Welcome to Displaced, a podcast from the International Rescue Committee and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon, and we are your co-hosts on the show. Every week we have conversations with policymakers, humanitarians and innovators. We'll be talking about the causes and consequences of war, how to save and improve lives, and how those working on those issues think about their work and their world. Guess what, Miss Sherry? What? I have a new best friend. Her name is Amal. She's for Lightington, and she's from Syria. Yes, and we like to sing and dance, and we count like this. That's this. great. Like this, Monsieur. Wahad, etnin, So for the last year, I've been immersed in Muppets with Sarah Smith, our guest today. Uh, Sarah and I worked together on a proposal that was the winner of the inaugural MacArthur Prize, which gave us $100 million to implement a partnership with Sesame Workshop. I'm delighted to talk to her because we spent a lot of time immersed in trying to build the whole Sesame partnership. This is the partnership between the IRC and the Sesame work, uh, Workshop to deliver Sesame Street programming in the Syria response region. Exactly. And what we sometimes don't get to do, even when you're working incredibly closely together, is step back and reflect on what works in education, where is it, why are we doing what we're doing? And that's what I'm looking forward to doing. I am excited to talk to Sarah because education is the last thing that I think about in humanitarian response. It's, you're heartless, <laughs> aren't you? You don't care about it's the kids. Not what I've, it's, it's, it's not what I've co- ever worked on or come at it from. And, it, and I think my position is the common one in the humanitarian sector, and you see this reflected in the budget allocation. So only 2% of humanitarian funding is actually allocated to education, which reflects the kind of prioritization that you see in the sector. And it's the reason that I actually am interested in talking with Sarah, because I, I, think that there's a, I think that there's a strong argument, I think, I hope there's a strong argument for education that's not quite captured in what's actually provided now. And I'm excited to dive in and hear her articulate that. Yeah, I think we'll also get quite nerdy with Sarah and discuss the evidence base on what works. Education's a space where there is an evidence base, right? Like you can actually look at the uh, the set of studies and increasingly compared to a lot of other intervention spaces, it's one where you're starting to see at least kind of a nascent body of work to know what works and what doesn't. Yeah, it's not got the same evidence, say, as health, which is way out ahead of everything else, but it's a lot more evidence-based than everything else. I think the big question is, can you apply the evidence uh, from one context to uh, places that we work, uh, which perhaps are, are quite different? So Sarah Smith is the Senior Director of Education at the International Rescue Committee, and she really leads the direction for IRC's education programming around the world. She brings with her both many, many years of experience managing and advising programs, and she was a teacher herself. Um, In 2016, she was named one of Foreign Policy's Top 100 Global Thinkers. She is a brilliant advocate for education in those affected by crisis. And without further ado, here is Sarah Smith. Sarah Smith, welcome to Displaced. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, One of the reasons I'm really excited to have you on is because I personally know very little about education in crisis settings, and you are the expert in that. So we'd love to have you start by maybe just painting a picture of um, the kind of landscape of what education in crisis zone looks like for us. Uh, Sure. Thanks for having me, Ravi and Grant. Um, It's great to be here. Uh, So education in 
places of crisis and for refugees um, can look a lot like what you'd imagine education looks like here. I visited uh, our preschool program in Lebanon last year. It was the first day of school for kids. And in I had just been to my son's first day of first grade, and they were doing an activity to describe their first day of school. And it looked almost exactly like the activity that my son had done in his preschool. Um, but the big difference was they were doing it in a camp. Um, they were in a, or in a tent and, uh, they were in a informal tented settlement in Lebanon, surrounded by, uh, other families, uh, living in very temporary shelters. Oftentimes education can be, take place in a school under a tree or a school, uh, in a tent. It can, um, use formal teachers, as we'd imagine uh, and have have here, or uh, you can have parents teaching a class. Um, But the the biggest difference, I would say, is that almost always the classes are overflowing with children because there's way more need than there are schools. And almost always they don't have books or materials. And uh, if they do, uh, you know, you've got three kids huddled around a a book or a, a, a notebook. So that's the picture in Lebanon. Just tell us a little bit about how it differs from context to context, because we work in middle-income places, low-income places, in camp settings, uh, within active war zones. Sure. So in a place like Bangladesh right now, where hundreds of thousands of children have just fled from Myanmar into into the eastern part of Bangladesh— um, it will look very different. There will be almost no infrastructure and literally no space for those kids and those families to go. So they're living all along uh, the river and crowded into um, places where tents and shelters haven't been set up. And for them, for those kids, uh, most of them are not receiving an education. So all day long, they're just playing out with their families and um, those who are able to go to school, it will be very informal. It might be, again, a tent um, that's set up or it might be just uh, learning with their parents uh, or another um, friend of the family in their home. In a place like Congo, for instance, um, where there are recurring cycles of violence and conflict and uh, lots of people um, being displaced regularly, kids are going to school in government public schools. So those those schools look like brick-and-mortar schools. Um, they usually don't have uh, desks and chairs, and they might have a kind of dilapidated blackboard. Um, but in, in a place like Eastern Congo, we work with the government, we help train their teachers, and we work around their system, and it looks more like a formal system. So we're going to get back into the particular challenges of those contexts and what the solutions are, but perhaps we can just rewind a bit and go back to your own career and how you got into this and what your role is now. Sure. Uh, so I was... This is the bit where you start to feel old because you think, oh my God. <laughs> yes, I do. I do. And uh, old and very lucky at the same time, um, especially uh, in today's world when uh, a lot of people are wondering what they can do uh, given what's going on. I feel lucky to have uh, done so many uh, amazing things in education over my career. My uh, I did the Peace Corps in Namibia um, in the mid-90s, and I would say that 
experience probably tells the the best story about uh, how I came to the IRC. Um, I was living in northern Namibia right on the border with Angola. And at the time, uh, well, Angola was in the midst of war for decades, but um, there were refugees actively coming across the border in Angola. I lived in what's known as a homestead. Uh, It's a group of homes surrounded by sticks and I could, the border was, it was a long walk, but it was walking distance from where I lived. We had refugees and uh, refugee um, families uh, coming into the community where I lived. And I watched not only uh, these families who had just fled for their lives, literally coming across the border, I watched other families take them in, give them a place to live. And then I was at the time working in a group of schools in my community training teachers. And I watched how the teachers and the principals uh, tried to help these families. Um, These were kids and parents who spoke a different language. They didn't know how long they were going to stay there. um, But all they wanted to do was send their kids to school. Uh, And that experience was obviously very powerful, and I think it gave me both hope that communities can do this and and help each other even under those kinds of conditions, Um, but it also gave me a, a deep thirst to find out how we can help families around the world who are going through that. I had heard of the IRC before that experience, but um, it was really that experience that then led me to work for the IRC. My first job with the IRC was in Sierra Leone, um, then in the early 2000s. You know, from there, have had the privilege of visiting almost every country program where we operate and uh, helping start up a lot of our big education programs, which is what I do now. Can I ask you a question about how your experiences in Namibia uh, shapes the way you think about education policy now? Because it's a unique experience to be in a community with refugees coming over and see them being absorbed into the local systems. And I think one of the many big questions in education policy and humanitarian response more broadly is – do you set up parallel systems to deliver these types of services? Do you, How do you work with the community? Um, where are you making the investments? Oftentimes, are you engaging with the state or not? What did you take away about the way you think education policy should be done from that experience? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought about it so much that I decided to write my dissertation on that exact topic. Uh, it is... Well, that, that worked well. I, didn't even uh, know that was quite uh, slick, wasn't it? I, I will, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it, most people might be thinking, oh no, a dissertation couldn't be more boring to listen about. Um, and I guarantee no one except for my advisors has read it, but it was asking this question about what what's the optimal policy uh, environment for uh, refugees coming from other countries. And and I, I've studied Tanzania, and the interesting thing about Tanzania is that refugees have come from Burundi, Rwanda, Congo, from all different countries since the early 70s, and then again in the 90s, and then again continuing today, and small trickles throughout those periods of time, but big influxes. And so uh, it was a good way to look at how policies change and how they very much depend on oftentimes the 
government of the country that's receiving refugees. I think people often think that um, the answer, so the way I would describe this study is, what do you do when refugees are displaced for an entire generation, when your child is going to go to his or her entire school career in another country that you're not calling your country? What do you want for that child? Do you want them to, what would I do in that case if I had to flee to Mexico and put my kids in school? Do I want them to follow the Mexican curriculum or do I want them to uh, get an American curriculum because I want to go home? And the answer to that question um, isn't, I don't think there's one answer. Uh, And I think families rarely have a, a voice in the answer. And oftentimes it's this a kind of confusing mix of UN agencies, the host government and the the government of from where the refugees came that are trying to decide and then NGOs um, like ours trying to get the voices of refugees heard into that policymaking. And in many places, it's never decided. And it's complicated because sometimes governments really don't want them to learn the language of the new country they've arrived in because that will signal that they're staying. Sometimes they desperately do because they don't want them to learn anything else. They want to control what they learn very uh, rigidly, like in Lebanon. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't. And and then there are times when, uh, you know, with the Rohingya from uh, Myanmar right now, where they're language has not been written, they don't have a curriculum that's formal, um, then uh, they themselves might want something completely different, like English or uh, an international curriculum. And uh, there's no real policy apparatus to make those decisions. And just sort of stepping back a, a sec to the whole question of education in crisis areas, humanitarian education, You can make the argument that, um, to be honest, people need to have their basic needs met. They need health, water, sanitation, cash for basic needs, um, and that we shouldn't really be spending money on education. And indeed, only 2% of humanitarian aid goes on education, despite the fact that uh, people are displaced for, on average, about a decade, and, and they need that learning. Now, although, you know, Sarah, you and I have spoken about this a long time, and we've pushed hard on uh, funding for, for more education projects, it's a fairly legitimate argument, isn't it, to say in a world when the need is so massive and the resources are not enough, that perhaps we should focus that aid on the most life-saving uh, interventions. I don't think it's the right argument. I think that uh, first, I think we need to realize that uh, education is indeed a basic need and a basic right and an essential service. Um, and and arguably life-saving, especially when uh, children are under such risk and threat when they're outside of a a school environment and a school is a much safer place. Um, But I think really the uh, question, and and I think trying to convince people of that in for the decades that the education community has been trying to have failed. Um, What I'm interested in more now is Uh, In a world of scarce resources, uh, what's the best use of those resources and how do we better understand where money is going right now where it shouldn't? And I'm a big believer that there is a lot of money in the humanitarian system that's not being used well and could be used better for education. Pulling out of that, but to ask a question about that, 
What do you think the compelling argument is for investing more resources in education as opposed to um, water and sanitation, public health services, the other bundle of goods that you normally see competing? Because I, I think you're absolutely right that there's a way that the humanitarian sector operates now, which is we have to get them life-saving services, but on average, refugees are displaced for 12 years. So we're just going to keep doing this year after year in ways that are inefficient allocations of resources once you actually take that into the long term and think about the outcomes for people. And if you think about that time horizon, it actually maybe makes you think about different types of investments. So what are the arguments that you make for education, whether it's about the time horizon or other pieces? And you should answer it, too. I'll I'll give my uh, first answer since it's my job to make this case. But I think the I would say there are three pieces to the case. First, that the money going into uh, humanitarian assistance right now, um, there is a lot of it that we have um, is going to things like coordination and other forms of, um, I would call, waste in the system. It's not going to a service. It's not going to water and sanitation program to, to a health service. And those that money needs to be examined very carefully and made public, and we're not doing that right now. The second thing I would say uh, that might be a little bit more controversial is I think more money needs to go to conflict and crisis settings than to stable settings. And I think there needs to be a shift from, you know, a lot of people call it the humanitarian development divide and money and development going into humanitarian. Um, I'd be more explicit and say I think we need to stop funding places that are stable and where governments and their their tax revenues can pay for their services and pay put humanitarian and development money together into the places that are less stable. And then I would say in general the uh, funding for education, we need far more creativity around the kind of money that we're putting into the system. So we can't just rely on, you know, stealing money from one arm of a big multilateral or bilateral donor to put it into another arm. We have to think of new financing mechanisms. We have to get the private sector involved differently. We can't just have them stand up and say they're handing out computers or something like that. Can I ask, can I just follow up to ask a, uh, about the second point, which is an argument that more money should be allocated to crisis settings um, and a really interesting, just like both ethical and empirical argument. I just want to like actually paint what it means. So does that kind of, from your perspective, mean that what we should be doing is actually sending money to the places like the Central African Republics, the South Sudans, the uh, Bangladesh and Cox Bazaar, where um, uh, the Rohingya crisis is taking place, than compared to, for example, the Lebanons, the Jordans, the Turkeys, which are comparatively more middle-income countries with stable functioning governments that are providing public services and particularly education, maybe not as effectively as they could be, and maybe they don't know they don't necessarily have the capacity to absorb refugee influxes as they would need. But is is that the kind of primary distinguishing factor? So I thought you were making a different point, which is um, essentially put the money into fragile low-income places, but also refugee hosting countries like Jordan, but take it away from stable low-income places, you know, India, China, where uh, arguably their tax revenues should be able to support their education. And, you know, where there is no real link, actually, between extra education spending and better results. 
So was that? Yes, that's that, it. I, that's the argument I was making, and it's a. I mean, you could have a a, a spectrum of where um, money goes, and have the higher income refugee hosting countries getting a little bit less than the Central African Republic, which has no capacity to provide for either their population or any population movements. I mean, I think what you said, though, about how we should think about the bigger pot of money that's not the humanitarian aid budget, which is only $25 billion, right. but the whole development budget that goes on all low-income countries, which must be a lot larger. I'm looking to grant my statistically more... Uh, I have no idea, but well, I was going to take. Usually, that's the tag team you play. But. Exactly, but essentially, <laughs> I think roughly about a third of aid goes to fragile contexts, and there's no reason why that shouldn't increase. It's been going up a lot, but I think it could go up a lot faster, exactly. and that's where I think we could probably get the the biggest increases in education spend. But one of the ways in which we're going to win that argument is through evidence. Something that you've spent a lot of your career being passionate about and leading the way on. And I just thought it'd be worth stepping back a bit and thinking. If you look at the evidence base across low-income, stable and unstable places, what the sort of um, main uh, lessons are about what works? Mm-hmm. Well, sadly, uh, there the, the biggest lesson is we don't know very much. There aren't a lot of lessons. And I was thinking back to is that. Tr- is that true of, of crisis-affected places or... Just or, or surely there's a lot of evidence in more low-income, stable settings. There is, but there still uh, isn't that much. And um, it's true for education, full stop, for education everywhere. I, I was thinking back to this uh, a, a U.S. government report on their funding for research and development. And this is globally, not just for fragile places. Less than 1% of their research and development funds, their research funds, goes to education. 44% goes to health, 39% to agriculture. So of the U.S. government big pot of money in R&D that's going into research, this minuscule, minuscule part is going to research for education. Now, that's just one donor and one statistic, but I think it represents there's – you're not going to get big uh, change through – a lot of small studies. We need a massive dose of money into uh, research and education. Um, That said, there are some important things that we know. One of the most exciting pieces of evidence that's come out of the last, I guess, five to 10 years is that uh, cash works for education too, that if you give people cash, then they'll send their kids to school with it. Uh, it doesn't improve learning outcomes uh, likely, but uh, it does Im- improve enrollment. Um, the second piece of evidence that I I think has been very exciting is uh, in the world of early childhood development. Um, there's a huge amount of evidence um, being generated, mostly in more stable places. But one of the most exciting things about, about it is that it's bringing together neuroscientists and psychologists and child developmentalists and educators to show that not only the effects of toxic stress on on child's development, but also that you can provide parents with very um, simple tools and um, help them 
be their child's first educators. And that's an effective way um, to mitigate the effects of toxic stress and to um, help a child's development. Um, and then on on teachers, teachers, there's a lot of research on teachers and how to um, promote them. And, you know, the basic story is not so surprising. You know, teacher training, teacher professional development, it works. But it needs to it needs a lot of follow up. It can't just happen in a workshop far away from where the teacher is teaching. It needs a lot of concerted effort into that. It gets at one of the trends that you see over time in kind of the educational agenda. I think that there is, you know, a decade or so where the drive was get kids in seats, get kids in schools. And that just did not shape learning outcomes at all. And it gets to the kind of point that you were making before, Ravi, about investments in education often haven't done much. And I would actually say that that's not necessarily the reason to stop investing in education and take money out of India. I think it's actually just a reflection of where the kind of intervention space was and what was being invested in. And now it's gone to and evolved into kind of a how do you actually shape outcomes? And you start to kind of look at the component pieces of this. And we're starting to build an evidence base. One of the, uh, I think, really interesting papers on this is a David Evans and Anna Popovov um, uh, review called What Really Works to Improve Learning Education Developing Countries. It's actually an analysis of all of the other meta-analysis of what works in schools. And like, and the, the, nerd, f- the nerdy thing about that is there's been <laughs> loads of different studies and they're surprisingly inconclusive mm-hmm. in that there are some syntheses of the various mm-hmm. studies and they all point to different things. That said, that particular paper I think is interesting because he points to three big uh, trends or three big ways of, of, of shaping outcomes. One is really about the fact that the level of variation in learning levels in the classroom is so diverse that actually you need to try to adapt the lesson to the level of the student. You can either do that through teachers um, being uh, much more adaptive and diagnosing the learning level of their kids on an ongoing basis and responding, or through computers doing adaptive learning. And the second big thing he points out mirroring what you said, Sarah, is the idea of teacher training being different. Instead of upfront teacher training uh, that may take a lot of time and effort and cost, but not really yield the change in behaviour, can we do more more ongoing, uh, continuous development and script teachers in a slightly more prescriptive way? And the third element I think is, is interesting also, which is about accountability. And you actually have to hold people to account. Sometimes performance incentives can work. Contract teachers has been another method. I, and we can dive into each of those, but I'm interested in your general view about whether those lessons, which have largely been in Kenya and India, not just Kenya and India, but particular villages within Kenya and India, do they hold true for some of the places you were talking about right at the beginning? So I would say the second one does, and the, the first one and the last one have some problems. So on the um, teaching to the right level, it's interesting because uh, this is one that we've really tried to make a push for in our education programs. And what we've discovered is in, especially in... And that's like matching the teaching yeah, ma- to the level of the student. Of the student. And um, it also comes out of a lot of um, developmental theory around how every child is in a different place. And if you can um, teach to where that child is in their developmental journey, um, then you're going to be more effective instead of teaching every child the same thing. Um, it, it, there's a lot behind that, and it's, um, it, it's not to say that it's not applicable or important. But what we see is um, that if you just 
base that off of how well a child is doing in a classroom, let's say how literate they are or what their um, their reading level, um, you're not going to see a great deal of variation in the context where we work. In a place like Niger, um, the kids are uh, almost all at such extremely low levels that um, we don't even have the right assessment tools to tease apart those levels um, because they're what we people would call functionally illiterate or whatever you're measuring. They're so low um, that you can't tease them apart and then therefore uh, change alter your teaching for those levels. That said, the principle is still right. This idea that a teacher has to understand her individual students, what their levels are and what they're able to learn and teach according to that. And the principle holds true in the sense that oftentimes you'll see still the curriculum for that country or for that um, school is not a curriculum that works for those kids. And so being able to adapt content and curriculum is is really important. Um, I would say on the on um, the teaching in a way that teachers can practice what they're learning um, is is so essential. And um, what we're trying to do is learn about the different costs associated with ongoing teacher professional development. We have a, a longstanding model of using teacher learning circles and um, having teachers essentially teach each other the best practices in teaching and have them um, turn themselves into a community of, um, of of teacher trainers. And then they go back into their classroom and then they come back into a, a this teaching learning circle. And it works really well. Um, but I think the uh, costs associated with coaching and monitoring at such a decentralized level are quite high, uh, whereas bringing everybody together for one week workshop that usually doesn't have an impact, you know, you can you can do that at a bit lower cost um, in some regions. And one of my frustrations with the evidence base is that it tends to test some very individual interventions when sometimes it's the conjunctions of things that will really make the difference. So, for instance, um, sure, if you uh, teach somebody a new pedagogical technique, but they are maybe not actually putting in the effort, they're not turning up then the new training is not going to really have an F, uh, impact. Conversely, if you uh, put in place teaching incentives and they try harder, but their method of teaching is all quite didactic, chalk and talk, then it probably won't have any effect either. And, and what we're not quite seeing is the combination of interventions that perhaps increase teacher motivation and effort and change the pedagogical approach. I think that's more about the kinds of studies uh, that you're talking about because that's yes, a frustration, the evidence. impact study. You know, exactly. that's you know a big impact evaluation and a meta analysis of impact evaluations. Are, you're, we're not going to be able to see them, but then that's where um, very good uh, qualitative research and other kinds of studies can can pull things apart. I mean, a big randomized control trial. I, you can look at a lot of variables, but you can't, um, you know, test them all uh, if you want to do so in a way that, um, you know, with large numbers of children as easily. But I do think that those the connections and figuring out um, which uh, which things are most likely to be connected to each other before you do a big trial um, is something that we could we could do better for sure. 
Yeah, this this is also a, a problem that is just common to all fields and non-unique, which is when you start to do kind of randomized control trials, you need to unbundle the interventions to understand what the impact of the single one is to start building out the evidence base if you're not in a place where you have that. And then you start testing the permutations, it, which is just to say it's going to take a while, Ravi. <laughs> I do yeah. think, though, your point, um, Grant, about – the sector having evolved from being very focused on evidence to demonstrate need now to evidence to demonstrate solutions is we're seeing that shift and very welcomed. And I think in uh, for years, it was a big debate. You would have people arguing over again, how to spend scarce resources for research, should we spend those resources figuring out the best way to prove how bad an education system is and how little children are learning or how few kids are out of school? I mean, these out-of-school numbers that we have have cost millions of dollars to get those numbers. How important is that? Is it more important? Should we have invested those dollars to into more trials to look at programs and solutions? Uh, I, I am of the mind, yes, you should be really investing your money in finding solutions, but uh, the, the problem, demonstrating the problem has helped. So let me, let me uh, take us to a question that I I've been grappling with and I think is where we started a little bit, but um, you're seeing a, a kind of deep question, which is how, do you invest educational resources through state-led schools or not? And the not part, you have multiple different options. You can just deliver them yourselves. You can actually have public-private partnerships, and there's new experiments being done in places like Liberia and elsewhere to kind of assess the impact of that. Um, but there's kind of a – the part that I think is interesting is are we playing the long game or the short game? If you're playing the long game, what you really want ultimately want to do is build up state capacity so that they can deliver educational services to large populations in a high-quality way over and over again. In a short-term way, though, you want to get – kids now educated, right? Like that's, that's the crucial thing. Um, and I'm curious about how you think about that trade-off, because if you keep focusing on kind of getting outcomes now, you could potentially end up in a model where you're not necessarily investing in the long-term institutions that are going to generate the long-term payoffs. I think it's a, maybe I have a, I oversimplify the answer, but to me, it's very much a both and answer. I don't, I think we need right now to find any solution possible to reach these kids. And we need to do it with uh, a government system that's going to stick around. I think sometimes both sides of the argument, I find, forget history. Um, You know, on the government side, oftentimes, yes, we need to help build the capacity of governments to ultimately be able to absorb kids into their system or to do a better job educating their kids. But entire ministries of education might turn around in a span of, you know, two years. And it's not to say you shouldn't do that. It just means that just investing in the government system doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be sustained um, or is sustainable. I think that's a common kind of, if we don't do this, it will never be sustained. Well, it's not always sustained, even if you do do it. And then on the other side, um, I think that, you know, there have been a lot of private models tested and there's often this idea that they're going to be, they're going to 
infuse innovation or bring um, up the supply across the board and all ships rise. And, you know, we haven't seen the greatest solutions either. Um, But I don't think that means that we should uh, throw them out the window. You know, we have to uh, the the education uh, field, I think, is uh, woefully uncreative. And, you know, we've been following this sort of brick-and-mortar approach since the beginning of education. And so um, we need creativity, including uh, private approaches. Um, but we need to make sure that they're accessible and high quality. I want to go into a different area now, Sarah. You've actually, you've actually taught yourself, haven't you? I've taught myself? Not my- taught yourself. You've been a teacher. <laughs> Oh, I te- you teach yourself every day. We, we, we're all learning all the time. Well, exactly. So, yes, I have been. I was a teacher. Because my reading of some of the education research is profoundly pessimistic about teachers. So some people will say, look, let's accept that they are not very capable and script them and be very prescriptive about exactly what they need to learn, what they need to teach. And then there's another group of sort of saying, well, let's just bypass teachers. Let's just have computer assisted learning. Mm-hmm. And you know there is a totally different way of thinking about this, which just says let's invest in teachers, let's pay them more, let's invest in their professional development, let's hold them to account, sure, let's make sure they're delivering. And that movement seems to be a little bit in the shadows at the moment. And some of the research, for instance, is quite interesting. There was a evaluation of a doubling of the pay of Indonesian teachers, which showed no effect. But my take on that is that we've never really tried the model of investing for a long period of time in in teachers and actually also holding them to account as well and seeing what that will do. And we're sort of quickly rushing to this quite pessimistic view of, of teachers. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I I think there is a... Um, I think then you've got the teaching community, and obviously some of them are even pessimistic, but they're, they're such a force um, that oftentimes they're the, the optimists in the, in the conversation. And I don't know that my teaching experience um, is helpful here, but my... Um, exposure to so many amazing teachers is certainly makes me feel as though first that on this scripted and how how much do you um, try to just turn a teacher into a, you know some sort of robot who's just following a script in my experience the teachers who are excellent teachers you give them a script they're not offended by that. They'll change it and they'll make it better. A teacher who's really struggling and who has been put into a classroom that is far too difficult for him to manage or who has not, who's been barely educated himself, um, that teacher appreciates that. Um, and so I, our programs don't, some of them are more scripted than others. And we usually uh, adjust it based on um, the needs of teachers and typically will have the first part of a curriculum be very scripted. And then te- as teachers learn, then they start to self-script. But I think in, in general, it's it's sort of a good problem to have if teachers are over-resourced. You know, we should be giving them more curriculum, more content, um, even if uh, some of it feels overly prescriptive. Um, but I, I also think that this idea of long-term investment in them and not just seeing them as uh, something that, yeah, that they just need to be held to account. I mean, they they're among the most political actors in a country often. People don't want to um, give them resources sometimes because they're afraid of what they're going to do, or they do because they are afraid that they're going to revolt. Um, But there is a long and rich tradition of supporting teachers and not supporting them and seeing the negative 
outcomes. <laughs> I, I often feel like there's a kind of a weird meta thing that happens in these types of spaces where we don't want to invest in teachers because we think they're not great quality. So we're going to circumvent them to not necessarily generate the systems that would produce good teachers. And it like kind of just keeps going down a rabbit hole mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you're in like a really bad equilibrium, right? Like when you look at from my understanding, studies like from OECD countries, high quality teachers make all the difference. There's a Ross Chetty study where he looks, does a randomized control trial in Tennessee in the 80s and follows uh, the students years later and basically comes to the conclusion that it would make sense to pay teachers about $320,000 <laughs> per year given the Im- enormous impact that has on life outcomes. So I think that in the debate, like particularly in fragile states, um, it, it, it gets to be one of the things that gets thrown under because it's the hard thing to, that you have to bypass. But uh, I want to just in our last few minutes take us to I think one of the cooler innovations that the IRC has been doing that you have been leading on, which is an amazing partnership to bring uh, Sesame Street to education in the Syria response region. Tell us about Muppets in that area. <laughs> It is exciting. Um, For those listeners who don't know, IRC is the recipient of uh, the MacArthur inaugural $100 million prize to solve uh, one of the world's biggest challenges, partnered, of course, with Sesame Workshop and uh, New York University as our research partner. The the program is uh, fairly simple in a very complex region. It has three parts to it. We're going to um, as you said, Grant, create a, a new broadcast television show, a Sesame Street for uh, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. Um, it will have likely different versions for the different contexts, but there will be a new Sesame Street uh, for the Middle East, new characters and storylines. Um, the second piece and uh, actually the second and third piece of the program um, are more direct services that the IRC will be delivering. Um, home visiting for parents who have children uh, ages from birth through three years old. Um, we'll be using a range of different kinds of service providers, community health workers, protection workers who are already going and visiting families for different reasons and equipping them with uh, materials and content, um, including some digital content from uh, the the show itself to help them work with parents to be better parents and to be their their kids' first teachers. And then we'll also be doing uh, center-based preschool-style programming in different kinds of centers. So whether it's a, a women's center with lots of women who bring their children or a more formal preschool, we'll also be bringing outstanding educational content into all of these centers. Interested to get your perspective on what you're most excited about from that partnership that we can replicate in other programs. For me, what's quite exciting is this combination of face-to-face services with broadcast media and digital services, because I think you can then get something that's uh, got the relationship that you need to actually get people to learn, but it's also reinforced in a very cost-effective way through media. And the other is this unusual combination with Sesame, which feels like something we should be doing more of. I agree. Every 
great, uh, huge problem uh, has to be solved by people coming together and different kinds of institutions coming together. I really believe that. It, it's hard, but um, I, I think this this problem deserves, uh, needs a lot of attention, and it's going to require a lot of creativity, and part of that is partnering with other kinds of organizations. The first thing I would say is just Sesame has a as we all know, a history of addressing in a really sensitive and thoughtful way some of the hardest topics for children. And their content, their their product is genius. And it is just outstanding. And anybody who grew up with it or has watched it with their kids recently, um, they can teach some of the most difficult concepts with characters and stories in a way that is rarely taught through other kinds of content. And it's really quite magical. Um, and they don't do it just in the United States. They do it in countries around the world, and they have a really great way of contextualizing for those countries. I do think the thing I'd add to, Ravi, to your points, going back to this um, evidence-based issue and how do we really make a difference in this kind of vacant field of evidence in this sector, um, this point that we can't do just a couple studies, this project will allow us to generate a body of evidence about a population of children, young Syrian refugees and Syrians affected by the war, that would not exist otherwise. And we're going to learn so much about these children, um, and we're going to learn so much about the kinds of services that are most impactful for them. And I think, you know, you think about some of the most seminal studies of Head Start um, or the Perry Preschool Study here in the United States. We wouldn't have have had those studies if 20 years ago or 30 years ago we didn't have that or, or the original evidence generated. And I think that what we generate through this project, I imagine, we'll be referring to for for many decades. Which is amazing because I, I love the fact that we're, that you and us are talking about like distribution mechanisms and like the different types of operational components, but like. What you're putting is there will be a refugee Muppet. Like that is that is so amazing and so hard not to just Don't get really talk excited. about David Miliband like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but like one of the things that was surprising to me as I was becoming more familiar with the programs was looking at the history of Sesame that you're referring to and seeing they had one of the first uh, gay Muppets. They had one of the first autistic Muppets. They have been kind of a um, just a stalwart in actually pushing the frontier of how we teach social acceptability and re-norm around that in a way that's profoundly, profoundly um, impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and evidence shows it's impactful. And so when you think about the kind of, you know, there's a part to it where we are helping educate a generation of Syrian refugees we're also helping educate and renorm a generation of host communities and the communities where they're living to think about the displacement crisis in a really different way than we currently are. And, and just on, on on Sesame, one of the other things that I think it shows is the importance of investing in early childhood development. And uh, I think only 1% of education spending from aid is on the early years. How How much of a shift do you think we need to make in terms of spending on early childhood development? Do you imagine it being um, the dominant part? 
to what extent do you think that uh, you should give up on people who are a bit older um, and, and uh, just focus on the early the years? Right. <laughs> or are no, you going to tell yeah. me about neuroscience now and how... No, <laughs> you know I'm going to say this This sort of pitting one age group against another is never going to be something I'm going to do. Uh, yeah, just give it all to the just young the kids. and not the, Yeah, No, it's just the wrong question. Um, but I think uh, I'm allowed to tell you, you asked me the wrong question, right? No, I think the... I, I think what's interesting about this model that will also help with the answer to your question is w- what we're doing is um, bringing great content um, and an approach to educating young children into a lot of different services. So oftentimes we think of, some people think of preschools. So are you setting up preschools and you know training teachers and building these new institutions. And we're not doing that. What we're doing is almost putting early childhood development into into the water. You know, it's like, you know, we're sort of putting into every experience that uh, a family member or a child has, whether they're um, going to the health clinic for a routine visit or whether their protection worker is coming um, to talk to them about where they're going to get um, cash assistance or um, whether they are going to a school. Um, whatever those touch points are, we're looking for ways um, to put early childhood development into those touch points. Um, and I think with this uh, this model will help us understand then how you can change the entire humanitarian system so that early childhood development programming programming for these young kids is always part of a response. But not that we're just simply saying we're going to add on this new massive pillar to the response. We're saying every response, you have health programs, you have protection programs. This is how you can make them that much better by making sure that they're serving the youngest children who are the most vulnerable and also those whose lives can be affected for their in, up into adulthood, as we know right now, if you do it now. Sarah Smith, thank you so much for joining us on Displaced. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.